Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and I'm excited to have Joseph Connor, who is the CEO of Schoolhouse, which has raised $8 million to help families set up at home in-person learning pods, group of eight, four to eight students of same or similar age, uh, students learning, socializing and developing together. Whether you're looking for a full school replacement or supplement, uh, Schoolhouse works with you and the brightest uh, and the best educators in the area. Um, Joe has done his bachelor's from Duke and he's also part of the on-deck scale fellowship. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So, you know, um, you, you have an interesting background. Uh, you uh, came from a legal uh, background. You've done your, your studies there. And, uh, you know, what got you interested in this crazy world of startups? Yeah. So I've always been interested in education. Um, so my first job out of college was teaching at the K-8 level in um, urban areas in America. So I, I taught in D.C., taught in Philadelphia, taught out in the Bay Area. And I was actually recruited to open up my own school. And so was in the process of opening that up in the Bay Area. We were down in the South Bay, so in San Jose, and ran into what you always do when you try to build anything in the Bay Area, which is local neighborhood opposition, um, and also in our case, teachers union. So we got sued, it ended up going to court, and we ended up losing. So at that point, I figured that I needed to go to law school to figure out how I could open up my own school. Uh, so did that and then practiced for a couple of years in the education and regulatory space. Uh, worked with some really cool startups and interesting nonprofits and orgs who were doing exciting things around micro schools, schools at home, homeschooling. And so that really interested me. And then just in this past year, uh, in 2020, decided to take the plunge, left my practice as an attorney and started working on this full time. So it's been really helpful to have that legal background when you're working in an industry like K-8 education that's pretty highly regulated in the U.S. Interesting. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, founders, you know, have a technical background when they want to, you know, get into the tech world. Uh, did you did you find uh, it a bit of a, a barrier to enter into into startups or because, you know, you know, you're working in a, in a, a tech company? Yeah. So I found that my background, both in education and in uh, legal and regulatory, was super useful for that. Um, so it's obviously important to find other founders who compliment you. And so our CTO um, is a great guy, had previously worked at a number of startups. And, and so that was a good fit for us in terms of having some of the background for legal and regulatory and education, and then also having that technical side. Um, so I think most founding pairs should always try to complement each other. And that's what we did at Schoolhouse. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, Schoolhouse is, is a very interesting uh, concept, and you you recently raised uh, you know more than eight million dollars uh, to solve the problem. But uh, you know what got you really interested to you know uh, look into this problem and 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 solve this problem? I, I was most interested in how can we scale great schools quickly. So I come from a charter school background, and for those of your viewers who don't know, charter schools are public schools run by nonprofits. So essentially the local school district can actually kind of outsource some of their work to a charter school. Um, and those charters often take 
two, three years to set up. There's a whole kind of regulatory process, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Private schools, similarly, they're less regulated, but also take a while and a significant amount of capital to start, especially when you're dealing with a standalone physical facility that needs to comply with local safety standards like the fire code. So I approached it really from an idea of how could you actually build a really great school network very quickly? And that was really what interested me in kind of approaching it with a startup, a a for-profit company that certainly had a bottom line of benefiting other uh, people, kind of having a social good, right? Um, But really needed to be able to raise a lot of capital very quickly so that we could expand quickly. So that was really, I think, what drew me into the idea of, you know what, the best way to do that is actually a startup company that can grow really quickly and is backed by VCs. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, the learning pods is usually groups of four to eight uh, students, right? And uh, do you think it's it's a scalable model uh, that, you know, you can you can uh, put a lot of growth capital and, and grow? Uh, you know, how, how about people who have this notion that, you know, the, the children should study in, in a school, uh, do you, do you f- did you find those kind of barriers when you're trying to build a company? Yeah. So we spent a lot of our time making sure that we only hired the best teachers. So one of, I'd say, our distinguishing features is that great teachers are at the heart of our model. And so I spent a lot of time in the early days setting up our recruiting process, setting up our vetting process. And currently, Schoolhouse accepts less than 4% of all teachers who apply. So these are really outstanding professionals who are going into the home who are teaching these children. And what we found was that we were really solving parents and teachers' pain points. And so the way that we've grown has really been through word of mouth. When we looked back kind of our original cohort in fall 2020, uh, somewhere north of 70% of our pods actually were through word of mouth, right? So we would set up a pod in say Brooklyn Heights, that person would have a great experience. They'd recommend someone on the Upper East Side, who would recommend someone in the financial district. And you kind of, it was really interesting going back and talking to these customers and having these customer interviews. You could actually almost kind of connect the dots as to how we had ended up um, at, you know, this pod over here in Westchester County. And so that has been, I think, really rewarding just to see how quickly and how organically a lot of our early growth has been. And, and yeah, you know, you talked about uh, 2020, but uh, has has the pandemic really accelerated the the micro school learning trend? Because most of the, I mean, most of the people all around the world are are either on Zoom or uh, they're doing online classes. But uh, did you uh, did you find it easier, uh, or what was it an inflection point for your company to really accelerate during uh, 2020? Yeah, so I I thought that it was um, basically similar to what the pandemic did in other industries, kind of bring forward by a few years what was already a trend that we had seen existing. I think it really did that in the education sector, right? So you've seen that a lot of online uh, virtual schools have really ballooned in enrollment. And similarly, you know, micro schools were a big... um, uh, trend in K-8 education in America prior to the pandemic. What the pandemic showed, though, was how important small class size was, how important uh, in-person education was, how important peer-to-peer interaction. And so we had a lot of our parents reaching out because they'd already tried the alternative. They had tried Zoom school, and it had failed for them, um, yeah. especially for really young kids, right? Kindergartners, first graders, second graders. 
it's really hard for them to be present, to uh, sit on a Zoom call. It's hard for us as adults to do it. And so a lot of our parents sought us out because they wanted an in-person teacher. I peer-to-peer interaction. And so we spent a lot of time, especially during COVID, making sure that all of our pods were safe and accessible for our parents and teachers um, and students. And I think going forward, we're going to continue to see this trend of interest in small class size in the teacher as really kind of the focal point of schools. And I saw that in my work as an attorney. I had worked with more and more startups and organizations that weren't trying to open up 100-person schools or 1,000-person schools, but were actually looking to open up a small school of 20 kids. And it was because parents have really bought into this idea of small class size and great teachers. That's, that's very interesting. And, you know, how, how you're addressing, you know, health concerns uh, around COVID-19 uh, because, uh, you know, you can't be in a bubble of more than, you know, four to four to six uh, students right. in one place. Yeah. So that was um, a lot of work on our part. And we were very deliberate, um, but also, I would say, flexible. So we operate in nine states and numerous cities within those states. And so a place like Texas was very different than, say, here in New York City and Manhattan. And so what we did was we had a minimum threshold for safety. We would require parents everywhere, for example, to health attestations to agree to certain restrictions on their movements outside of the pod, right? So they're not going to go en masse to large concerts, basically just kind of sign a contract saying that they're willing to take reasonable precautions. And then we would follow what the local state guidance was. So in some places, that meant that we had pods that were meeting with masks and were six feet apart. And in other places, it meant that people were meeting, you know, indoors with no masks because that was allowed under the guidelines. And so for us, having kind of that minimum threshold for what we thought was safe and also following the local guidelines actually ended up being kind of the best way of making sure that everyone was safe, but that we were also following what locally made sense, right? Because as we saw over the past year, when there were surges in places like Manhattan, other places in the country were not necessarily uh, experiencing that. And so it made sense from our point of view to make sure that locally, parents and students and teachers were following what the guideline was. And it wasn't necessarily kind of a one size fits all model where everyone has to follow it. Right. And uh, Joe, you talked about that you're there in nine uh, states as of now. And uh, how, how does the structure work? I believe it's a, it's a remote first company, but uh, do you have people uh, staying in those states and who's trying to oversee, you know, how the company is uh, growing those states? Is that, you know, I just want to understand the structure of the company. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are, I'd say we have, um, we're still remote. And so we don't have a office space. Um, when I think post COVID happens, we're probably interested in looking into getting some office space. A lot of our employees are here in New York state, um, but we are remote, as you said. And so in every state we do have teachers or we do have internal staff and they're the ones who are monitoring and making sure that all of our pods in that area are following the requirements. Um, and so, as I said, we have nine states. And so in every state, we've made sure that, you know, we, we have kind of the local guidance in that city, in that state. We make sure that the teacher and the parents and the students are aware of that. And then we're kind of constantly monitoring that for updates. So it is a lot of work because, you know, you're both monitoring internally your company to make sure that everything is proceeding operationally well. But then we actually also had kind of this added 
pressure of we also had to monitor the schools and it would look very different in Massachusetts in January than it did in Texas in October. And so we were kind of constantly um, making sure that we were focused on safety and uh, that also we were focused on continuity of education. So parents obviously want a safe pod, but they also want to make sure that as much as possible, their kids were um, in class and were being educated by a teacher. And so those were kind of our two guiding principles. We wanted to make sure it was safe and that we could continue the education in person as much as possible. Awesome. And, uh, you know, when I was starting uh, to research about, about education, I, I found about ESAs, which are like a state-based programs. Can you, can you explain more about ESAs and, you know, uh, did, uh, you know how, how can they really help uh, parents, you know, fund the, 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 the child's expenses? Yeah, absolutely. So ESAs are essentially, uh, they, it stands for Education Savings Accounts. It is a concept that was probably first introduced about 10 years ago and has increasingly become more popular, uh, especially with the pandemic. And the basic idea is that the state government will give a family a certain amount of money and that that family is allowed to choose from a list of approved vendors. Um, so, for example, Arizona has an ESA and the ESA, the amount is about $6,000 and you have to have certain qualifications um, in order to um, get that money. So basically most ESAs either have income eligibility. So low income families would qualify, middle income and above would not qualify, or you maybe have to have someone in your family who's been diagnosed with a special education um, issue, and then you would also qualify. And so what happens basically is that you get, I mean, in some places I, I think it is literally an account um, or it is like a, a, a debit card similar to an HSA, right? And there's kind of a list of approved vendors. And so you could use that ESA for tutoring. You could use it for private school tuition. Uh, you could use it for field trips. You could use it to buy books, curriculum. There's kind of a whole host of things. And so ESAs are really interesting because in those states that are implementing them, they're really stepping back and basically not having the government be the monopoly provider or the sole provider and actually allowing businesses, nonprofits and organizations to better serve those kids. And it allows families flexibility, right? You know, the, the one size fits all model basically presumes that every family kind of has the same values and would want the same things. But I think one thing we've seen from the pandemic is that people want vastly different things. And so an ESA is kind of a innovative way to allow families to get that choice and to actually vote with their dollars, right? And they can vote to go, you know, for an educational field trip to the local children's museum, or they can use that money for a tutor. Um, and so, yeah, that's a very interesting new tool. And Schoolhouse is looking into it because it's something that right now we subsist primarily on private pay tuition. So families are paying out of pocket. But going forward, we are interested in utilizing ESAs and other school choice programs. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Interesting. And, uh, and it's the ESA, uh, you know, does it come from an IRA of a, uh, of a family? Uh, I just wanted to understand more about uh, how, how does the, re the funds really come uh, for a particular family? 
Yeah, so it, it varies per state. Each state has set up their own program. And some states, the government administers it. And in other states, they've actually given it to um, what is called an SGO, a scholarship granting organization. So in Florida, for example, they have an ESA and the SGO is the one who administers it. And in both cases, you have to apply either to the government or to the SGO. Once they determine that you've met your eligibility, then they will provide you um, with uh, a certain amount of money. Um, and then you're able to spend it as you want. But it is, it's distinct from like an IRA or an HSA or, or something else um, because there's kind of a different uh, admissions criteria. Now, as part of the eligibility process, and apologies if this is going too much of the week, oh, absolutely. You, you will, you'll have to provide your previous tax returns, maybe going back a few years. And so that's generally how they make sure if it's an income eligibility, that's, that's how they're making sure that the family actually would qualify for that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very interesting because, uh, you know, what if families would want to go for a, for a tutor or, some, or, a, or a product yeah. like a schoolhouse? Uh, I think the uh, ESA model is going to be very interesting going forward. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, the differenti differentiating factor of schoolhouse or the teachers. Uh, how do you wait on your teachers uh, so that the high quality is maintained uh, for your company? Yeah, so we spend a lot of our time uh, thinking and creating an environment where teachers were really appreciated. So I'm a former teacher myself, like most teachers in America. I left after a few years because um, I, it was going to be tough for me to raise a family on that. Um, also, it's a very inflexible job. And so two of the things that we immediately implemented are that our learning pods and micro schools are really flexible for the teachers. So we don't say that there is a set time the teacher has to arrive and the teacher has to leave. The teacher actually works that out with the family. So for some families, um, it makes sense for the teacher to leave early at one o'clock because the teacher has young children at home and wants to be able to care for them in the afternoon. Um, other teachers arrive late. And so that gives the teachers flexibility um, in terms of taking days off, in terms of childcare responsibilities. And then the second part of it, um, and the part that I really... Um, appreciate is that we typically pay our teachers more than their previous teaching position. So because we don't have a physical facility that we have to buy, lease, pay upkeep on, and because we don't have kind of the large back office that you think of when you go into most schools with a school secretary, principal, dean, et cetera, we're able to pass along the majority of the tuition, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 93% of the tuition we collect goes directly to the teacher in the form of salary and benefits. And so most of our teachers are making more money on average, 10 to 20% more. Um, we do have some teachers who uh, were actually able to upgrade their salary this year by 20, 30, 40%. Um, so it's been really exciting for these teachers to be treated like professionals, also to be paid more. Um, and they're, they're quite excited about that. So we, we've gotten kind of a great group of initial teachers and we're able to continue to recruit great teachers because of some of those benefits that I just talked about. Right. So also they're paid more and they have more flexible time uh, yep. with the family. Right. And, uh, you know, during the COVID time period, I've, I've got a lot of uh, friends who have kids and I've, I've, I just understood that, you know, uh, teachers are doing a lot of legwork because it's difficult to, uh, you know, take care of uh, the kids. And I think the families were really struggling. They really wanted the kids uh, to be <laughs> to be back to school. Um, I think uh, in uh, UK, especially, you know, the schools have opened up. That's That's been a great thing. But uh, 
you know, when it comes to remuneration, why do you think teachers are paid so less with so much of work? And, and do you think they they could be a uh an alternative uh, for teachers where they could make money outside of the school because uh they are working for one pay paycheck and they're overworked uh but do you think going forward uh, there could be a disruption especially in the teaching community yeah yeah i mean look it's a good question i would say that most salaries are set by the local teachers union so when we expand to a new state or a new city and we're trying to figure out what our salary scale is going to be we typically look at what is the local union salary schedule and it's often almost always publicly available so for example right now you could go search you know new york city doe teacher union salary schedule and it would have you know 1 2 3 pages of exactly what each teacher will make for each year in the profession and each degree And so I think part of the problem with compensation with teachers is that it's very much determined on uh inputs and not outputs, right? So you make more money if you're in the profession for longer. A 10-year teacher makes more than a first-year teacher. And you make more money if you have a master's or you have a PhD. And neither of those has been uh definitively shown to be correlated with uh academic success in 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 um students. Certainly having more experience generally helps, but there's nothing to indicate that a 20-year teacher is going to be better than a 5-year teacher at teaching. And so I think part of the problem is that we are compensating teachers based on inputs and not outputs. So I think part of it is could you restructure it so that we're actually trying to measure what it is the teachers are doing and you could actually then pay them according to merit, right? So this is called merit-based pay and it's somewhat uh controversial in the US but some districts have Im- implemented it the idea is simply being that like most other professions teachers should be compensated according to what they produce not according to you know uh how long they've been in the position so i think that's part of it and then i think the other part is also that um teachers generally are not very uh they're they're not in a great position to negotiate their salary right as an individual teacher I'm going to a school, I have to accept what that salary schedule is or I have to accept what the salary schedule is that, you know, um this local public school is going to pay me. I think with the rise of Schoolhouse and other online platforms, a really exciting thing is going to be that great teachers hopefully can be discovered on these platforms and can finally get paid what it is that they're worth. So if there is a great teacher who's on Schoolhouse and it's a 10x better teacher than a teacher down the hallway, that teacher should accordingly be able to charge more for tuition or should be able to teach more students and should therefore accrue more salary and bonus and etc so i think that those are kind of some of the issues that arise with teacher salaries in the us and and hopefully uh schoolhouse and other platforms like that are really going to allow teachers uh to start being compensated for what they actually create and some of their outputs rather than just kind of this old school uh input mentality that we currently have and uh you know can a teacher keep his job at a school and also be part of schoolhouse yeah so right now we're only working with full time teachers uh okay. we find that it's really important especially during the pandemic to make sure that uh teachers aren't necessarily kind of moonlighting with other students part of our safety requirement right is that they're only going to be with a small group of students so right now the teachers are full time 
Right. And, um, you know, when you when you wait on the teachers and they, they get onboarded, uh, do they have to pay an amount to be part of uh, the company? No. Um, so we are constantly recruiting teachers. We have job postings on numerous job sites. Um, we also get a lot of word of mouth referrals. But similar to any type of um, platform, there's kind of an interview and vetting process. Uh, so there's a three round interview process followed by we do five different types of security checks, just education, employment verification, and then three types of criminal background checks just to make sure that there's no um, untoward things in their past. And then they're allowed to be on the platform. And then at that point, we actually have uh, parents and students who are coming onto the platform looking for the, the, the teacher that they want. And so we act as a platform that is actually kind of connecting them in a marketplace and allows you know, the interested families who want a teacher in say Bedford Hills, New York, to meet with the teacher who is available in Bedford Hills. And then they meet each other. And if it's a match, then we're able to start the school uh, immediately. And uh, if not, then that teacher is available for someone else. But there's no payment required for the teacher um, to be on our platform. Right. And, uh, you know, when, when families are, uh, you know, uh, sign up with, with teachers, uh, do they also need to, you know, pay, pay any amount or, uh, you know, what if uh, they just, one teacher for 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 say one child you do go ahead and and make that appointment i was just wondering you know uh, for a micro school does it have to be four to eight students in in a group yeah so um there's no fee assessed for the parents either for browsing on the platform um the only time that uh, the parents would pay is once they've actually agreed and selected their teacher then at that point, we send out um, a kind of the first tuition payment for the school. But there's no fee charged uh, prior to that. And, and what are the total fees that a family has to pay per quarter? Yeah, so it varies um, based on the teacher. So we do allow teachers to some degree to set their own salary. So we think that that makes sense for the conversation that we just had, right? We want great teachers to be paid more. Um, we want younger teachers to be able to charge less so that they can have their own school as well. Um, and so on average right now, the average tuition is about $14,000 for a schoolhouse school. Um, so in places where we are in the Northeast, that's quite competitive. So here in Manhattan, we have a number of pods. Average private school tuition is about $44,000 here in Manhattan. And, and our, as I said, is about $14,000. Um, so one of the nice things about the model is that it actually scales nicely. So in places like Texas, we can charge somewhere more in the neighborhood of, say, $10,000 because cost of living is much cheaper in Texas. And so teachers get paid less and therefore the tuition fees are less for our parents. Okay, got it. And um, uh, do you host all these parts? Uh, is it uh, inside, a, uh, inside a community or uh, inside a parent's house? Yeah, so it is uh, generally in parents' homes. Um, we do have uh, some that take place in commercial space. So most are taking place in a home. Uh, we have some in basements, some in garages, some in family rooms, playrooms, around a kitchen table, outside, weather permitting. Um, and then we also have some that are in commercial space. So especially in New York, there's kind of a lot of empty storefronts. So we've had some families that wanted to actually have the school outside of their apartment or home. And so they have uh, they're actually renting um, space, and then that's where the schoolhouse is happening. So it's actually in that uh, rented space, like a former bank or a former bakery, former restaurant. Um, and so we have a number of those. 
That's really interesting. And you know, how, how many students are enrolled in schoolhouse as of now? Right. Right now, we have several hundred enrolled um, for this year. This is our first year of enrollment. Got it. And uh, so, so your target audience are uh, people on the middle income and high income uh, group who are looking for private tuition for their student. That's right. And we are hoping to be able to expand um, to reach more students uh, and more communities. Got it. And, you know, what do you think about the unbundling of uh, education? You know, I think the micro school model is, is, is very interesting. I think I, uh, before the call, uh, you know, we, we talked about uh, uh, with this model, which was talked about, uh, I got to understand from a podcaster called Jason Calacanis. And uh, I, I thought it was very interesting because uh, uh, I'm not from US, but a lot of, lot of families thought that, you know, uh, uh, making the students study in the micro school is very important. But do you think students go on to miss uh, that, uh, you know, the socializing aspect and those other things when you uh, study in a, in a micro school? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question and one that has come up with our families before. We think that one of the benefits of the model has been that you really get kind of a small core group that's able to move through material very quickly. So part of that is, you know, we have kindergarten classes that have already covered all of their standards by the fall and are already on to first and second grade curriculum. Um, it is an issue for socialization and it has been an issue during COVID-19. Post COVID-19 though, we expect that we'll have more pod to pod interaction. So you could imagine three pods in say a neighborhood coming together for after school programs or for some type of school play. Um, right now, that is impossible because of COVID, but that is, I'd say, one of our answers to the socialization question. The other one, too, is that, you know, we really see ourselves as um, a solution for a certain part of the age continuum. So we serve kindergarten through eighth. There are, um, you know, high schools out there. We're not planning on moving into high school anytime soon, but that would also be another option where I think kids at that point do want more socialization. And so that might make sense for them at that point to explore a larger school. To have an interesting stat for you, to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Uh, do you think anyone could start a, a, a micro school uh, and, you know, uh, since, uh, you know, what does it really differentiate a uh, schoolhouse from other micro schools? Uh, is, you yeah, know, it's a good question. And one that we actually answered for a lot of parents middle of the way through the year or at the beginning. You know, it is somewhat difficult to start your own micro school. There are kind of numerous obstacles. I, just for one is kind of uh, payroll and benefits, right? So all of our teachers um, are on our payroll and benefits platform. For the average parent to do that, um, it's hard to do that for a single um, employee, right? So that's the benefit you get from us. Insurance is another component. Um, if you're operating a micro school yourself, you would have to, you know, or you should be looking into kind of different types of insurance policies, workers' compensation, slip and fall, general commercial. Um, and once again, that's really cost prohibitive for a single school. So a lot of our benefits are from being able to kind of share these um, access points across all of our teachers. Um, the other thing I'd say that we provide is we have access to a large curriculum library. All of that is purchased for uh, students. We also have teacher coaches. 
Um, we have certain quality standards that we're enforcing. And so generally, we found that parents and teachers are actually really happy not to think about those things and not to have to do them all themselves. And so that's been kind of a large component of our business. Got it. And, uh, you know, the, the name of the podcast is Lifestyle Mastery. And, you know, uh, 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 were there any change in your values or, uh, you know, your value system, which made you, made you start the company? You know, how do you, how do you look at, you know, uh, have a mastery of, uh, of your life and your values and, and purpose? Uh, did you see that change and which made you, uh, you know, start this company? Yeah, I, I would say that um, I have, an incredible amount of respect for anyone who is going out there and building their own thing, whether that's a company or a nonprofit or a podcast, because it takes so much initial energy to get something off the ground. I mean, I'm sure you saw that with your own podcast, right? Yeah. And at, at, at every time, right, there's always obstacles and reasons not to do it. And um, I think most people are kind of maybe you're, you're blissfully ignorant if you've never done something before of actually all the obstacles. And maybe if you actually knew everything that was going to crop up, you might not do it at the, at the beginning. Um, but I, I really appreciate that journey. I, I'll just say that I'm, I'm someone who's had kind of numerous careers as both an attorney and as a teacher, and those have steep learning curves. But starting something new, being entrepreneurial, having your own company, your own culture, your own podcast, I think is just really... Um, outstanding. And I would encourage anyone listening, you know, to this podcast um, to just kind of go for it and to start something now rather than to wait for the perfect moment. Um, I, as you said, have a very varied background, but when I look back on it, one thing I often say is, you know, I, I think I probably could have started this earlier, right? Like it kind of took me years to get to this place. And it was always because in my head, I had a checklist of, oh, I need to do this before I can do that. I need to do this before I can do that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just have a lot of respect for everyone who started their own thing because it's really, really hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, uh, if I could go back, I would start this podcast or, you know, get into startups much, much before. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, how, how do you look at a balance between mission and vision? Uh, and, you know, uh, how, uh, uh, you know, uh, are there times when something is not really working or should somebody be more realistic, especially during the crimes of COVID? Uh, we, we not, uh, you, I mean, you would want an office space, but now you have to work yeah. uh, out of your room. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you balance that mi mission and vision, especially with your founding team? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. I think it's, it's, I mean, you hit on the key word. I think it's a balance, right? You want people who are willing to try new ideas. You don't want someone in a meeting or in response to an idea who's just going to say no, because it's unfeasible, right? I think there has to be an assumption that ideas, strategies are offered in good faith, and you actually kind of need to figure out why you shouldn't do something, right? So you do need to have a mission and a vision, but you also need to be open to revising it. And I think back on our journey and, you know, I just, we went through kind of the founding uh, journey of the startup. And most people now have heard the founding story of Tesla or Apple or Facebook. And what you get is often, I'd say, like the highly cleaned up and uh, straightforward version. But what is left out, just because it, it can't be included, is all of the small pivots or the, the turning points and decisions that got you there. And so, you know, there's things only look clear in retrospect. 
And I think you have to kind of constantly be questioning what you're doing while staying true to what you think your mission and vision is. And at the end of the day, there are difficult times where um, as a founding team, you have to pivot or one of your assumptions about something is just not true. And generally, when I look back on those key moments, my only thought is I wish we had done this earlier because there's always an indication that like, oh, you know what? There's actually not this market interest for this customer demographic. Um, and you might end up continuing with it because you've internalized it or maybe it's your idea. And so you're kind of beholden to it. But I, I think the, the best teams are the ones that are able to kind of keep competing ideas in their head of, you know, I might be right about this, but I also might be wrong. And when the data is telling you that are actually able to switch very quickly, because a lot of early stage startups is just that being able to, I think, react quickly to what you're learning and have a very fast pace of learning. So you're constantly getting better. Yeah, no, I think you put, put it very well. A uh, lot of start, startups are, are actually reacting to, you know, how the situations unfold. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, we, we be, uh, we've been part, I've been part of On Deck uh, Podcast Fellowship, and I think it uh, was a very interesting uh, 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 experience for me, especially uh, with the high quality of people out there. Uh, and I understand that, you know, you've also been part of On Deck Scale Fellowship. Is that the yes. inaugural uh, fellowship for On Deck Scale? Yes, that's right. So it started um, in January of this year, so January 2021. And On Deck Scale is a program for founders who are at a specific part in their company journey. So they are post-seed, and they are looking to Series A, B, C, D, and so forth. And so it's this great group of um, founders, obviously remote because of COVID, um, but, you know, it's everyone, uh, it's from different injuries in, uh, industries. So there's like financial tech companies, there's education companies, there's, um, marijuana companies, there's enterprise companies, social media companies. Um, but what's really useful is that you actually have people who are in the same stage as you. And so even though, right, this guy over here might be running, you know, a, a, a marijuana business. Uh, a lot of our a lot of our challenges in terms of scaling, right? Like when should uh, I hire a CFO? Like when do I need to hire like outside counsel for legal issues? What what's a good way to work with accounting firms? Um, you know, when do you know product market fit? When should you be scaling up that if you think you've achieved it? All of those are very specific, not to an industry, but actually just to a stage. And so I think that the most interesting thing for me has been being able to network with other people who are at that similar journey and kind of share best practices. And people are also have been really honest about, you know, some of the um, nitty gritty of starting startups, which is very hard, right? Uh, you know, interpersonal conflicts, um, running out of money, uh, you know, all of those issues that come up um, from running it. And so it's been really useful just to kind of have a network of like-minded people and to also kind of learn more from them. Interesting. And because, uh, you know, Eric Thornburg, who's the uh, founder of OnDeck, uh, recently tweeted that, you know, the millions of people who would like to attend uh, elite universities and pay, uh, you know, steep price for it, uh, but all they end up doing is creating artificial scarcity. Uh, but, you know, you've yeah. been part of part of the, uh, you know, you've been part of a, a big university and uh, you've gone through OnDeck. Do you think people going forward uh, would look at a concept like, going through micro schools and missing out on college and go, go through the on deck uh, sort of a niche course and, and start off the journeys. Uh, uh, do you think yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's what I haven't thought about before, but I, I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think 
what on deck is doing what schoolhouse is doing what other similar companies in the education space are doing are they are kind of taking on the traditional gatekeepers right the 300 year old private school or, or 300 year old university and you know essentially what you're graduating with is that credential right and that credential is you went to a prestigious ivy league school you went to a prestigious private school and I think one of the benefits of, of these new ed tech companies is that they're trying to make the output more um, merit-based in some ways, right? So it's not that you're graduating with kind of a certain credential and that means you're a certain type of person. It's, you know, you're going through on deck and you're graduating and now you're, you, you have an on deck podcaster and you've kind of created this podcast audience or you, you've come up with this idea for it, right? Or you've gone through on deck uh, founders program and now you've created your own company. And so I think that, increasingly, hopefully we're moving to a system where people are not just going to be judged, I, I'd say blindly by, you know, oh, I have this degree from this university, that means something about me, but it'll, it'll be more merit-based than that, you know, um, they'll, they'll actually be looking at, okay, but what have you done with that, right? And in some ways, I am more likely to hire someone who actually has gone and say, you know, actually built their own company, right? And that's a great person for my CTO rather than someone who's gone to a really prestigious university has a, a master's degree in computer science from there, but maybe hasn't actually done something with it, right? And so it's this interesting, I think, push-pull of um, these kind of uh, old school credentials with kind of these new credentials that are, that are being put out there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I think it's uh, going to be very interesting uh, going forward. And uh, Joe, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yeah, um, favorite business book. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think uh, Shoe Dog by um, Phil Knight. Uh, yeah. That was a great one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you could go back in time when you when you started uh, School Laws, what is one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Yeah, I think um, for a first-time co-founder or a first-time founder, really, what I didn't realize was how intentional you have to be about creating a great culture. Um, culture, you know, happens whether or not you're intentional about it. And so I think it's really important for people starting their own organizations and, and companies to make sure that they are being intentional about creating a great culture. And so one of, I, I'd say, our... Um, things that we struggled with early on was we had so much growth early on that we were so focused on scaling. And then we kind of uh, had these organizational deficits we needed to go back and fill with culture. So I think that that's really key. Focus on culture from day one. That's really interesting. And uh, do you have any favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Oh, what's my favorite of those? Gmail, Slack, or Zoom? Uh, or any other favorite online tools or they're just examples in, in yeah. your favorite online tool. I actually like Slack. I know that it gets uh, a lot of guff, but I, I think um, of those, I think that Slack is the most useful. And even though we're Zooming now, I think uh, most people are tired of seeing themselves and, yeah. <laughs> and Zooming. And uh, I think there's probably going to be a dip in Zoom usage going forward. Yeah. And uh, Joe, what is the best, best way people can reach out to you and know more about Schoolhouse? Yeah, um, great question. So, um, you know, on Twitter, I, I'd say is the best way. So my Twitter handle is at Joseph J. Connor. And then um, if people have individual emails, um, you know, they can email me at my personal email address, josephjconnor at gmail.com. I will put that in the show notes. Uh, Joel, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I uh, really enjoyed my conversation with you. Great. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.